Welcome to our podcast at the Clemson Foothills Church. We're glad you're here. Join us as we discover what the Bible says about Jesus loving God and serving each other. Feel free to visit our website at clemsonfoothills.com and find us on Facebook at Clemson Foothills Church. At CFC, we're just a group of people following Jesus and helping others do the same. So hopefully this podcast will be useful to you. Now let's dive into the episode for this week. Welcome again to Clemson Foothills Church. My name is Patrick. I'll be doing the lesson this morning. I want to um, start off by asking, did anybody almost get here an hour early? Did anybody get here an hour early just because they love God? That's the safe one to raise your hand to. It wasn't a mistake. It was enthusiasm. Um, no, I, I want to, um, I always like starting things out by zooming way out. And so I want to take a minute, even just thinking where we are in the year, it's daylight savings. We're actually halfway through the fall season. Today, 311 out of 365. Time's always going to be moving fast. We're always going to be busy. So I appreciate the moments of stillness we just had. Um, In the spirit of that, I'd actually like to have another moment to just take a deep breath, breathe, know that you are safe, that you are welcome, that you're loved, that we're glad you're here. And uh, I just want you to think about what's been going on in your life and uh, just let your parasympathetic nervous system regulate let your heartbeat slow down and uh, just be still for a minute so just take take a minute and self-assess where where are you at what's been going on this year what have you been going through what's what's weighing you down what were some of the highs and lows so today we are uh, wrapping up the book of First Corinthians, a series we've been doing for, I feel like, most of the year. Um, and I don't know about anyone else, I've actually been absent on Sunday service, I think, six out of the last eight services. Between being out of town, illness, and travel for family, all of my extended family's holidays, birthdays, anniversaries are like mid-September to December. So this is always a crazy time for my year. And I think we did Kingdom Kids once or twice um, when we actually were in town. So um, anyways, when I was thinking about just the, the passage that Tyler read earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, um, I honestly felt like I needed a refresher on the context and where we'd been coming from. And so Uh, What I'd like to do today is kind of start at a very zoomed out macro perspective on just the whole book, do a really fast summary just to remind us where all we've been the past 
like six months with all of these lessons and then uh, tie in that passage and how Paul is tying up the whole book with this specific point. Um, and then we'll take communion at the very end. So, uh, Reese, can you? Are, are we still on the renew? Okay. Um, can you click it? So, full disclosure, this is not my drawing. Uh, this is Tim Mackey and his studio. They do amazing summary overviews of the Bible and... Um, this was a tool that I used in my personal Bible study the past few weeks, and uh, I was like, I can either repackage this or just point to it. So, um, so what's going on in the book of 1 Corinthians? Paul visited Corinth. Uh, it's recorded by Luke in the book of Acts in chapter 18, and uh, he spends a year and a half in Corinth preaching the gospel. And this is a really rich chapter, actually. This is where uh, he meets Priscilla and Aquila while he's working. This is where he baptizes Justephus' entire family. I think I said that right. Um, This is where he has a vision from God. This is where he transitions from primarily targeting the Jews to kind of closing that chapter, in a sense, and aiming a lot of his focus on targeting a completely different demographic that is very controversial thing for him to do in Jewish culture. Um, So this is a very pivotal, pivotal chapter, pivotal city uh, in the story of the gospel. Oh, this is also where Apollos um, is met. And it's actually with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos that Paul leaves his church planting with. He says, y'all are leaders, y'all have what it takes. After 18 months, I'm going to keep going to Ephesus and uh, Antioch, Pergamum, Galatia. So he travels this huge, huge swath. And after 18 months... There, he says, y'all have what it takes. I'm moving on. And while he's traveling, weeks and weeks, months and months, he starts getting reports through his network of some stuff going on in Corinth. And so he writes this letter to address some issues that he's hearing. And uh, it's interesting the way it's organized. There's, uh, it's kind of like five separate essays on different topics that he wants to address. And he starts each one by introducing the topic, issues of division, sex, food, the gathering, and the resurrection. He identifies what the issue is, what the problem is, but then he says, okay, I want you to reevaluate this facet of your life through the lens of the gospel. And he does this every single time in each of the five sections. He says, think think differently about the community you're in, the family you have, the relationships you have, the work you have, the church you have, and re-examine these issues that you're having in these areas through the lens of grace and forgiveness and love. 
So there were issues of division where people preferred specific leaders, specific teaching styles, specific backgrounds or education. It essentially was personal preference, but it was becoming more than that because they were disrespecting each other and it was becoming kind of tribal. Paul says, no, this is not everyone. <laughs> everyone is a servant of Christ. This is not a popularity contest and it's okay to connect with someone or prefer someone's style or whatever, but we're not going to love other people less. We're not going to disrespect the other teachers or someone who has a different opinion than you on this matter. So he says the, the opposite of the divisions that they need to have are unity here. And with sex, they're saying, oh, we have freedom in Christ. In the, in the culture, it's, it's okay to, you know, sex is a part of religion with temple prostitutes. And it's kind of this sticky situation where Paul's like, no, this is not okay. Like the reason Jesus died for you is for your sexual purity and holiness. And not protecting that is ruining your integrity, your relationship with God, but also it's gonna damage a lot of other relationships in your life. That's why God says it's not allowed in the first place. And uh, so the opposite of promiscuity, he says, is holiness and integrity. Then there were issues of food. And it wasn't just, you know, moral dietary things. Um, It was a religious overtone where the food was being sacrificed to other gods. And so there was this big conscience issue. And there was a bit of a race issue because Jews and Gentiles tended to kind of fall into either one camp or the other. And so Paul says, okay, let's delineate what's really going on here. We don't need to be associated with polytheism and thinking that the God of the Bible is just one of many gods. And so we don't need to be seen as like accepting other gods. And so monotheism, loyalty, and like soul reverence to God is important here. Also, how we treat each other is important. And if someone just really, if this makes someone really upset, then you need to think of them as more important than you. And say, if, if me eating this upsets you, then I'm going to care more about your feelings than I'm going to care about how this food makes me feel. That's really convicting. That's not natural for me. Um, I'm very selfish. I, I like what I like and mind your own business. That's my, that's my starting place. So I, I, I return to this a lot because it's very applicable. But So the third topic of food, he's saying the, the power of the gospel is supposed to help us love one another and help us love someone more than ourselves. It's forgiveness and it's grace and it's mercy that frees me up to not feel like I need to cling so tightly to my rights and my freedoms, whether it's my physical relationships, whether it's my preference in teachers, or whether it's 
what I'm eating or what religion someone might think I'm associated with. It's the freedom that God gives us to care about others more than ourselves. And similarly, in 11 through 14, when they're meeting together, there's some confusion. Some spiritual gifts are being kind of misappropriated, not used in their best way. It's distracting. And Paul says, look, when we come together, this needs to be about us coming to build each other up, wanting to give not thinking about ourselves. They need to be orderly, they need to be structured, they need to be outward focused. And so he's wrapping all these things up. He says the resurrection is true. It's easy for me to kind of just skim over that because I've been raised in the world of Christianity and I've heard that all my life. I've, I've never had an issue believing that. Um, but I think this is, there's a reason he saved this for last, this argument of the resurrection. And, and I think Ben has done a phenomenal job the last two weeks in this passage. And some of, some of, my little section is kind of iterative of what Ben's already covered, and so um, I don't feel like I need to expound a ton on this section. But I do want to say that I think there's a reason God said that resurrection is a crucial part of our doctrine and our convictions. And a lot of people didn't believe that. And a lot of people in the church didn't really believe that. I'm like, that's foolish. That's stupid. That's, that's not true. It's a fairy tale. It happens some other way. There's some other ending. And uh, I think I can nominally agree in my head that the resurrection is a truth, but it doesn't really affect how I live. I have no emotional connection to it. It doesn't seem tangible in any way. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I think part of this is remembering that this is a spiritual battle that we're in and not taking that for granted. But God says, you're in a a world at war. A spiritual battle is going on. You're effectively living behind enemy lines. And most importantly, I want you to know that I've won. You are on the winning side. You have victory. And even that, it's easy to think of as, you know, kind of cute, like a a children's Bible coloring book. Um, I don't necessarily associate that with a lot of the, you know, tangible evils that I see, you know, 
on the news or the broken relationships in my extended family. Those just somehow seem very unrelated. But I think of... Um, I'm, I'm a history nerd, so it helps me to think of... Like, I just think of World War II and like how big of an ordeal that was. <clears throat> I think of, okay, that no one questioned if that was real. Like, there was no argument of like, you know, stop peddling us lies. Like, this is all warmongering and people grabbing for power. Like, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. Everyone knew this was a real and a very big deal. And uh, I want to try and weigh the spiritual battle with that same gravity of if our nation were at war and if all the powerful nations in our planet were taking sides and engaged, that would totally change the atmosphere of our day-to-day lives. And so as Paul's tying up all of these other issues, he's saying, think about the future. Think about what's going to happen when you get together, when you, how you treat each other, when you protect your purity. You say, I'm not going to eat this, or I'm not going to behave this way, or I'm not going to show favoritism or disrespect. We're building up the same body that we are a part of. I also like what, what Ben said <clears throat> covering this topic of thinking about what does the resurrection say about who God is. And you think about what he's saying. I'm, I'm taking death out of the equation for you. It's lost its sting don't need to fear it. We have victory. And I'm giving you a body that's not going to wear out, that's not going to get sick, that's not going to degenerate. That might not seem that exciting to the younger crowd in here, but as, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to appreciate youth that I still have. I think this is a really big gift. This is not something to be taken for granted or, you know, it's not fine print at the end of the contract. This is a really, really good gift for God to say, I want to be with you and I'm going to give you this amazing, amazing body that's going to last for eternity. And again, on the one hand, it's easy to say, well, okay, but I I still don't really know what that's going to be like. And I think, like a lot of areas of faith, there's some vagueness for a reason. God wants you to dig in. God wants you to seek Him. He wants you to put a little effort in. He also wants you to trust Him when the answers aren't clear. But I think He also wants you to try. Try and imagine I don't think you need to go to cultural symbolism. I think over the centuries we have lots of examples of clouds and cupids and 
I don't, I don't know how much of this really came from the Bible, but there's a lot of clues in the Bible about the afterlife. And it's not just in the scary book of Revelation. It's in the letters. It's in a lot of Jesus' parables about reward and heaven. It's some of the topics that he brings up more than any other. It's also in the Old Testament. It's a lot of really, really exciting passages about God's temple and God's throne room and what's coming and some really cool symbolism of, of how cultures are going to, armies and countries are going to topple one another and what's coming next and what that's going to look like. And it's, it's really good poetry and, and metaphor. And um, I, I think it's easy, it's easy to say, well, I don't have anything to go off of. And I just don't think that's true. And I think with a little bit of effort, the way you might want anything else in life, if you dig in, the answers aren't that hard to find of what is it going to look like? What is my reward going to be? How can this really be a tangible... The reason he saves this for the end is not an unrelated afterthought. He's tying all of this together saying resurrection gives us the hope that we have to empower us to overcome our divisions and have actual supernatural unity. Looking forward to eternity means I can overcome all of my impure thoughts, all of my lusts, all of my shame or hurting other people. It's going to help this, this victory over death, this hope of incarnation being risen with Christ is what gives us power to love one another more than we care about our diet or how the Sunday service goes. And we can actually put each other first. So this, this feeds into and supports everything else. He doesn't start with it but he ends with it to help everyone see. Look way down on the horizon and the little hill that you're climbing or the little valley that you're in isn't as big as you think it is. Some examples that I thought of, one of my favorite is uh, the book of Job, just seeing his faith in the face of incredible loss and the grief that he feels, which is likely more than I will ever experience, of a simultaneous, my business dies, all of my wealth is plundered, my children are dead in the ground, and my wife is saying, curse God and die. And just the way he can be so forward-thinking to the future, it's the same hope that he's putting his trust in God in. He's able to say, these things are really small. 
and they really hurt and I don't understand it, but I trust him and God has done no wrong here. He gave, he gave and now he's taking away. Another example of one of my favorites is Moses. And uh, in the book of Hebrews, the address is 11.24. says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He had celebrity status, a reputation and amenities of royalty. And he said, I'm rejecting all of that to be associated with and treated like the slaves. It's hard for me to even think of like a cultural equivalent today, but I feel like a safe analogy is what, what would it take for you to feel so freed up and happy and secure that you would just be willing to sell everything you have and go, you know, live in a third world country and barely have, you know, running water and electricity and enough calories to get by? This is challenging. But I think it's the same, the spirit of these people is the same spirit that Paul is trying to embody the church in Corinth with to help them overcome their circumstances and say, look what's coming. This is a really big deal. It's not just a a fact. It's not just doctrine of something that's true. This is supposed to be tangible, experiential. It's supposed to be real. Like when you when you keep making the analogy about honey and how it's you can you can just say, you know, honey has these properties or you can say this is what honey tastes like and it's my favorite thing in the world. Like that it's there's a difference there that you can't fake. And I think that's what he's trying to give to the church in Corinth. My, la- my last thought was an analogy that helps me is the security I think this is supposed to bring is the same I imagine I would feel if I was told I won the lottery. If someone just knocked on my door and said, you've won you know, $500 million, none of it's even going to be taxed. You just get it all. Like the relief that I would feel of like, I don't have to worry anymore. I don't have to question how are my needs going to be met? Are my loved ones going to be taken care of? You know, if, if, if a disaster happens, like all of those things that are just always in the back of my mind, they just evaporate. It's like, oh, but I have this resource. 
and I can be secure and confident that it's not going to leave me and no one can take it from me. And unless I squander it, which actually a lot of lottery people do, unless I mess this up, then I, ha- I can have absolute security that me and my descendants will be taken care of. And that's always a helpful analogy to me. When I wake up, I ask myself, okay, I'm supposed to have that kind of freedom and security because of God's love for me, because of all the legal debts that he paid, my criminal record that he wiped away, the adoption that he, the process of adoption that he went through to get me, and the sacrifice, and all the nitty gritty little details that he still orchestrates so that I would reach out and find him, and that I would come back to him when I walk away. That's supposed to give me the same security when I wake up. The same freedom to say, in these crazy, extreme, you know, Job-like situations, or if I were like Moses, just given everything that everyone in the world thinks is what they need, give me palaces and treasure and reputation and status, I can go anywhere, I can do anything, I know I'll be safe, I can have whatever I want whenever I want. I'd be willing to give all that up, the complete amenitied life, just give it up. Because of the resurrection. <clears throat> so we're, we're going to take communion. Um, And I think what we've been talking about is very relevant to what communion is supposed to be. Um, Reese, can you click the... I had a really important next slide. Oh, gosh. It's ruined. Yeah. (laughs) This took hours. (laughs) Time's new, right? I I dialed in that font size. Um, I just wanted to make two quick points about communion. And the first was on grace. Coming out of the reference to communion in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses how they're taking communion. And one of the things he says is that you're taking the Lord's cup in an unworthy way. And... I have a really guilty conscience. And so when I hear that, when I take communion, I draw inward and I think of my naughty list for the week and I think, okay, I need to, you know, whip myself and say I'm sorry and never do it again and I need to do just as many equal and opposite things this week to offset those last week. And then I will have decided that I have taken communion in a worthy manner. 
And I think to some extent, some of that self-reflection is really good. I also think it can entirely miss the fundamental Christianity 101 of I will never deserve what I've gotten. I can never behave well enough. I can never do enough. I will never be enough. And God says that's okay. I'll make up the difference. Just trust me. Just walk with me. Just love me back. Just try. Just hold my hand. You got this. And what what he says when he says taking in an unworthy way was how they were treating one another when they came together to take communion. It wasn't an individual, isolated, vertical, spiritual, like between me and God. That's not what Paul was addressing. So I don't want you to do what I can normally do when you take communion. I think communion is supposed to be not this funeral atmosphere, but a celebration of let's come together and let's eat and let's remember how awesome God is and the depth of His sacrifice and the heights of His love. And let's encourage one another, build one another up, and speak faith to to one another. And that's how you take communion. So my first point was on grace. My second point, it's not necessarily easy to relate to those five points of issues that the Corinthians had that Paul was trying to address in the letter. I do think we are just as broken and just as messy and can be just as immature as any example in the Bible. And I think, just like kind of in the beginning of this sermon when I was thinking, okay, let's just take a minute and reflect on this timeline of the past week, the past month, past year, the past decade, where you've been. I want to kind of revisit that and ask... What baggage do you have? And if you say, I have no baggage, I'll tell you what it looks like. It can look like hurt feelings. It can look like anxiety. It can look like anger or grief, confusion, doubt. It can look like sin. That's what I'm referring to as baggage. And in the same way that I think Paul wants the Corinthians to feel loved enough to be able to be in a relationship with one another and love others more than themselves, I want to invite you now to do the same. And invite God in. And just like how Paul addressed each issue that they had, and said, let's re-examine this through the lens of the gospel. Your family, your community, your church, your work, your relationships. Let's re-examine these issues 
through the lens of the gospel. So I don't know what you're going through now. Half the time I don't know what I'm going through. But I want you to think about whatever's on your mind, whatever's on your heart. When we take communion, look at that through the lens of the gospel. And in the spirit of the resurrection, after you've zoomed in and looked at all those little circumstances and known that God loves you, and because you're going through them, He cares about those, those circumstances, I want you to zoom way out. And just like Paul is saying here with the resurrection, when you look at the horizon of the timeline of eternity, this stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it still needs to be addressed. You know, it still needs to be dealt with. But it doesn't matter. None of it's got to matter. So that's all I have, guys. We'll take communion. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about us or have any questions, please visit ClemsonFoothills.com. You can also text Foothills to 94000 to stay up to date on everything going on here at CFC.